Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That one is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like a chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. So we just began a series on prayer. Um, specifically, we're looking at the book of Psalms, which is very famously known as the prayer book of the Bible. If you want to know what prayer is, um, if you want to know how to pray, you need a teacher. Getting into the Psalms is like going to the school of prayer. Now, um, it would be easy to think that, well, if Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible, then you would expect that if you open it to page one, boom, you would begin praying. But that's not what happens. Many people have noticed that the very first psalm in, uh, or the very first psalm in, in the prayer book of the Bible is not actually a prayer. It's something else. In fact, it's telling us something very important about how we actually enter into prayer. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a wonderful book on the psalms. It's been one of my main resources for this series. When he talks about Psalm 1, he says that Psalm 1 is pre-prayer. He says it's getting us ready for prayer. What does that mean? I love the way he puts it. He says that the non-praying world is a pushing, shoving, demanding world. Voices within and without harass us, insisting that we look at this picture, read this headline, listen to this appeal. We, We could probably add in our world read this tweet, watch this YouTube video, check out this Instagram post. Eugene Peterson says, it is asking too much that we move from this high-stimulus world into the quiet concentrations of prayer without an adequate transition. We need something to help us transition into prayer. You know, it's really interesting that thousands of years ago, um, when whoever put the book of Psalms together Um, They put Psalm 1 as the very first psalm in the whole book of Psalms. They did it because they knew that we need some kind of gateway or bridge into prayer. We need something that helps us enter into prayer. They knew that, that we all live in a world that's constantly pulling us away to pay attention to all kinds of other things, to get distracted by all kinds of other things, and that if we're really gonna enter into prayer, we need something to help us make the transition. We need something that gets us ready for prayer. What is it? That something is meditation. Psalm 1 is all about meditation. It says, if you notice the flow of thought, blessed is the person who doesn't do this, 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 or that, but who meditates on the word of God day and night. That person is blessed. That person experiences a transformed life. It's saying the very first psalm in the prayer book of the Bible is not itself actually a prayer. It's a meditation 
And it's showing us that if you really want to get the most out of prayer, if you really want to live a transformed life, then you need to learn to meditate on the Word of God. What does that mean? Let's see four things this morning about meditation um, that we see here in Psalm 1. We're going to see the importance of meditation, the promise of meditation, the practice of meditation, and the challenge of meditation. All right? The importance, the promise, the practice, and the challenge of meditation. First, the importance of meditation. One of the main things that this psalm is showing us is that prayer is actually supposed to be a conversation between God and us. This means that you know, prayer is something where we're not just the ones that are actually doing all of the talking, that we should be doing some listening too. You know, last week we mentioned how frustrating it is to be in a relationship with somebody who all they ever do is talk about themselves. If you know someone like that, you know that they're basically very shallow people. If, if you know someone like that, you know they're really self-absorbed people, and, and you can never really get a, a word in edgewise with people like that. That means that because they're not open to any outside words coming in, no truth ever gets into their life, they remain shallow people. They remain superficial people. They never really change. So here's the question. If prayer is just you talking and God doing all of the listening, how is that really going to change you? The answer is it won't. Therefore, prayer must be a conversation where, where we're doing at least as much listening as we are doing the talking. In fact, if, if the person we're conversing with is God, do you think there's a chance that maybe he ought to be the one who's doing more talking than we are? Now listen, I'm not saying that you know, prayer that's just calling out to God is not valid prayer. You know, a lot of t- we talked about this last week. A lot of times prayer begins in trouble. You send out a flare. You send out a distress call. You just call out to God. In fact, that's the way I started learning prayer myself. I started learning to pray. The, the beginning of my prayer life was I was 28 years old, and I was in rehab for alcoholism and drug addiction. And, and I was not looking for God. But they told me, Eric, if you want to stay sober, then there are a number of things you need to do. But here's one of them. When you get up in the morning, get on your knees, and you ask God to help you stay sober that day. And then at the end of the day, you get on your knees and you thank God for one more day of sobriety. That was the beginning of my prayer life. It was a distress call. I was just calling out for help. And that was wonderful. But you know what that did is it opened up a hunger in my heart. And I realized, whoa, You know, I'm calling out to this God to help me in my life, but I don't really know who this God is. That was the beginning of everything for me. Unless we allow God's word to come into our life, unless we allow um, time in our lives to really listen to what he's telling us, to allow that word to lodge in our hearts, then we're never really going to change. And, you know, and this is incredibly important for us, especially in the culture that we live in, because in our culture, we live in a culture that says that, that ultimate truth is ultimately located inside of us. And that if you want to know truth, that what you have to do is you have to listen to what your heart is telling you. And then you have to express your truth to the world around you because it's really important to be true to your authentic self. Listen, if that's all you ever do with God in prayer, then all your prayers will ever be is you projecting your truth onto God instead of him penetrating you with his truth. And you'll never be changed by it. 
Meditation is different because meditation is actually taking the truth of the Bible and applying it to your heart. You know, meditation is different than just studying the Bible. It's necessary to study the Bible, but meditation is actually different from studying the Bible. When you study the Bible, what are you doing? You're learning information. You're gathering information. You're learning the truth, and that's hugely important. You you have to spend time doing that. In fact, that's a lifelong endeavor, but meditation is actually a little different than just studying the Bible. Meditation is taking the truth that you've learned in the Bible and then applying that truth to your heart. It's taking God's truth and applying it to your heart. It's kind of like You know, when you take a little bit of yeast and you start rolling it into a ball of dough with a rolling pin, the yeast is the truth. And and, and our hearts are like the ball of dough. Meditation is the rolling pin that you use to get the truth in there. You're just rolling it in, pressing it in, massaging that truth into our hearts. Because here's the thing, whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. That's one of the main things that this psalm is showing us. Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. I mean, if you look at verse 1, it's really, it's talking about our heart. Now, what does that mean? Look at what it says in verse 1. Blessed is the one who, what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, counsel, that means your thinking. It means your intellectual life. It means your mind. But then look at what it says next nor stands in the way of sinners. When the Bible talks about the way, it's talking about your behavior. It's talking about your way of life. Do you see what's going on here? It's talking about your mind. It's talking about your behavior. Next, it says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. To sit down with someone, that's an act of allegiance. That's an act of of your will, of your volition. This psalm never uses the word, but this is talking about the heart. Now, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not just talking about your emotions. When the Bible uses the word heart, it's talking about the control center of your life. That means your mind, your behavior, your will, your choices, your desires, the deepest affections of your heart. It's all bundled together in one place. It's the control center of your life. The Bible says that's your heart. And whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. That's what verse 1 is talking about. Meditation is taking the truth of God's word and then pressing that, massaging that, um, kneading that into your heart. And unless we learn to do that before we pray, then then we just end up um, projecting our truth onto God instead of him penetrating and pressing his truth into us. That's the importance of meditation. But secondly, we see here the promise of meditation. You know, as I mentioned, this psalm is itself not actually a prayer. It's a meditation. In fact, it's a meditation on meditation, and it gives us an image to help us understand what meditation is like. It says, it it actually teaches you to do meditation by leading you through a guided meditation. So if you want to know what meditation does for you, this psalm says, look at a tree. Consider a tree. So let's meditate on this tree and see what this psalm shows us that meditation actually promises for your life. First, meditation promises stability for your life. Notice in verse 3, it says, The person who meditates is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, that's really interesting because, you know, a lot of trees aren't planted next to any natural water source. That means that in order to get water, they have to wait for it to rain. 
Trees that are not planted next to any natural water source are dependent on weather and, and various other circumstances for their very survival. But this tree is different. Do you see that? This tree always has water because its roots go down deep into the very source of water. It's not dependent on any outside circumstances for its life or its well-being. So that even if it doesn't rain for days or even many months, this tree's going to make it because its roots go down deep into the source of water. This psalm is saying that meditation on God's word gives you a rootedness. It gives you a stability. It's not dependent on the ups and downs of life. So that when the ups and downs of life come your way, you're not going to be uprooted. You're not going to be shaken apart. Notice also, this does not mean that you will never go through tough times or suffering. Because did you notice how it says this tree bears its fruit in season? In other words, there are times in this tree's life cycle when it's not bearing fruit. So you may go through dry times, you may go through uh, fruitless times, you may go through discouraging times, you may even go through dangerous times. You may even go through times when you feel like God has abandoned me, but this psalm is saying, no, don't let that throw you. You may not be bearing fruit right now, but if your roots go down deep, your leaf will never wither. You're not going to be uprooted. You're going to make it. That's what it's showing us. So first, meditation on God's word says it, it promises stability in our life. But secondly, it promises substance, that you will actually become a more solid person, a more real person, a person of, of character and integrity. And you see that especially uh, when you notice what this tree is contrasted with. What does it say in verse 4? It says that people who don't meditate on God's word, that they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Um, it's giving us an image. Now, it's a little hard for us because we don't live in a farming culture, but chaff is like the little husk that surrounds a grain uh, or kernel, uh, for instance, of corn or of wheat. Have you ever eaten popcorn and you see those little shells that are on the outside? That's chaff. Chaff is empty. It's, it's, it's meaningless. It's worthless. It just floats away. It's nothing but a shell. And the way they separate the chaff from the grain, it's called threshing. And what they would do is they would throw the kernel up in the air, and then the wind would separate the chaff from the kernel so that the wind just blows it away. The psalm is saying that if you don't meditate on God's word, that you will become less solid, less real. There will be less substance, less character, less integrity in your life, and that eventually you'll just be blown away. That's actually a little scary, especially when you realize that this psalm and this image is not talking about whether or not you're what the world would call a good person. That's not the question here. The question that this psalm is addressing is not, are you a good person? It's saying, what are you rooted in? What is the source of your life? That's a different question. Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. The scary thing is you could be a really good person. You could be a far nicer person than many other people in the world, but if you're not rooted in God's word, that you're just going to be blown away. You'll become like chaff. So for instance, there was a movie several years ago called Infamous. It was about the famous writer Truman Capote. And, true story. In 1959, Truman Capote uh, read a, a tiny little article in the New York Times about a rancher named Herb Clutter and his family who were brutally murdered in Kansas. And the story 
um, intrigued him so much that he actually traveled out to Kansas to investigate the story and eventually to write a book about it. It was his most famous book he ever wrote called In Cold Blood. Um, and there's a part in the movie where uh, Truman Capote is interviewing one of the rancher's friends, a guy who knew Herb Clutter and his family. And this rancher friend is telling Truman Capote about Herb and about what a good man Herb Clutter was. And here's what it says. The guy says, Herb was one of the most respected ranchers in the state. If there was a list that told you how to succeed with honor, why, he just did everything that was on it. You see, he worked hard. He took care of his family. And when he went to church, he didn't just get his time card punched. No, he went in and he listened. And I've always believed that whenever you do something right, it gives you a little bit of weight so that you come to feel rooted to this earth, you know, solid, secure. Now, what scares me is, well, sometimes out of nowhere, a bad wind blows up. It could be cancer, could be drink, could be some woman that don't belong to you. And despite that weight that's holding you to the ground, when that wind comes, it picks you up light as a leaf and takes you where it wants. We're in control until we're not, and then we're helpless. This psalm is showing us that you can be a really good person, you could be a really nice person, but if your life is not rooted in God and in his word, then ultimately you're like chaff that the wind blows away. There's no substance because you're not rooted in anything of any substance. If you're rooted in romance or family, that can be blown away. If you're rooted in your career or money or success, that can be blown away. If you're, even if you're rooted in your own moral performance, oh my goodness, don't you know, that may be the most vulnerable thing of all, that can be blown away. If you're rooted in anything that can be blown away, when it's blown away, not if, but when it's blown away, you'll be blown away. But if you're rooted in God and his word, there's a stability in your life and there's a substance in your life because you're not rooted in yourself and who you are and what you do. You're rooted in God and who he is. That's the promise of meditation. That leads to our next point. We've seen the importance of meditation. We've seen the promise of meditation, that you'll become a person of stability and substance. But next we see the practice of meditation. How do we actually do this? I mean, practically speaking, what does it look like? There's way more than we could possibly talk about this morning. In fact, we talked a little bit about it last week. If you want to um, go download the sermon or subscribe to the podcast. Uh, and we're going to keep talking about this in the weeks to come because there's a lot of ways that this could look. And I um, just apologize to you. This next point in the sermon is going to be more informational than inspirational. Um, but I do want to give you some practical pointers on what this actually looks like. Now, the first thing is this. The focus of meditation is Scripture. That's the first thing. What are we focusing on in meditation? Scripture. In this psalm, it says, the law of the Lord. Now, that could mean things like the Ten Commandments or all of the laws that God gave Moses and the Israelites. But when this psalm talks about the law of the Lord, specifically, it's talking about the whole of Scripture. It's talking about the whole Bible. In fact, one of the fascinating things about the word law here is that this word law is the Hebrew word Torah, which means instruction. Eugene Peterson, in his book, he points out that this word Torah is a word that actually comes from a word that means to throw something, like a javelin, so that it hits the mark. 
In other words, Torah or the word or the law of the Lord is is living speech that's aimed at your heart. It it has intentionality. It's intended to change you so, so that when it hits your heart, it hits the mark. God's speech is speech that's aimed at our hearts. It's meant to change you. Now, here's the thing. If you can only do this if you let the Bible have ultimate authority over your life. Otherwise, it'll never change you. So, for instance, if you say, well, look, there are parts of the Bible that I agree with, I understand, but then there are other parts of the Bible that, well, I don't really agree with that. They were for a different time. Um, they were for a different culture, a different time and place. And that, you know, we now know that those things are culturally regressive and they don't really apply to our life today in this society. If you say that, do you realize what you're doing? If you say, some parts of the Bible are God's authoritative word for my life, but then some parts aren't. What you're really saying is you're the one who decides which part of God's word has authority over your life, which means that you're the one who has authority over it, not it over you. Because you're the one who's deciding. If that's your view of the Bible, you know, then maybe it can be a source of inspiration for your life, but it can never be Torah. It can never be a living word aimed at your heart. It can never really change you because you're not letting it in. It's never going to contradict you. It's never going to challenge you. And therefore, it will never change you. If you say, I'm the one who decides which parts of God's word are authoritative over my life and which parts aren't, ultimately, you're the one who has authority over the Bible, not it having authority over you. And I want you to consider one more thing about this. If the Bible doesn't have ultimate authority over your life, something else does, right? Because on what basis do you decide which parts of the Bible have authority and which parts don't. Something else must have ultimate authority in your life. Do you know what it is? Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. Something is going to shape your heart. Something is going to have ultimate authority over your life, and that means something is going to determine the very direction and trajectory and ultimate conclusion or destiny of your life. Do you know what it is? So first, focus, the focus of meditation is on Scripture. It's on the whole Bible. It's on the Word of God as having ultimate authority over your life. But secondly, what does it actually look like? How do we do this? As I mentioned, we talked a little bit about it last week. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come, give you more instruction on this. But let me, this week, I just want to rely on a little book that was written by Martin Luther. He was one of the great founders of the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago. Martin Luther wrote a little book um, called A Simple Way to Pray, and I think he actually wrote it for his barber. So this is meant to be very practical uh, wisdom, practical pointers on how we actually meditate on Scripture. Martin Luther says four things that you do, and you can remember them by the the initials T-A-C-S, tax. I know that's not like the most intuitive thing, but tax, like tic-tacs, okay? T-A-C-S, truth, adoration, confession, and supplication, okay? So first, he says truth. That's where Bible study comes in. The first thing Martin Luther says you have to do is you have to understand the truth of what you're actually meditating on. It doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. The the, the Word of God, the Bible, actually has objective content, and one of the first things we have to do is make sure that we actually understand what it's saying to us, the truth of what's being communicated to us. That's the yeast, right? Right? And in order to do that, you have to be able to answer two specific questions. First, what did this text mean? What did the original author mean 
um, to the original audience? What was the original context? What was the original meaning of this text in its context? But then secondly, we have to be able to answer the question, what does this text mean in the whole story of the Bible? Not just what did it mean in its original context, but what does it mean in the whole context of the Bible? And especially, what does it mean in the ongoing story of redemption and salvation that has its climax in the salvation of Jesus Christ? Now, that's a big mouthful. Everything I just said, you're thinking to yourself, whoa, that's a lot of work to figure all that out. It is. Meditation begins with truth. It begins with studying the Bible to make sure you understand the truth of what it is you're actually meditating on. So that's first, T for truth. Second, Martin Luther says that what you do next is is you take some truth. Maybe you read a little passage or maybe even just one verse, and you get the truth of that. And he says the next thing you do is you start adoring God on the basis of that truth. You ask yourself the question, the question is, what does this truth teach me about God that I can adore him and praise him for? And you start doing that. You start turning it over into your mind, rolling it over in your heart, thinking about that. What does this teach me about God that I can adore him for? That's the second thing. So T, truth, A, adoration. C is confession. The next thing we do, Martin Luther says, is you you ask yourself the question, okay, what does this truth also teach me about myself for which I can confess and repent before God. Not just what do I adore God about this truth, but what does this truth teach me about myself for which I confess and I repent? And then lastly, what you do is supplication. So after you've got the truth, after you've spent time adoring God for this truth, after you've spent time confessing on the basis of this truth, that's when you actually begin to pray. You start talking to God. Okay, God, in light of this truth that I've just seen, in light of what I've seen, it teaches me about you and about myself. How do I want to talk to you? How do I want to ask your help to change my life in the light of this truth? You start applying the truth to your life and praying for God to help you apply that truth to your life. Do you see how that works? You do start praying, but only after you've spent quite a bit of time meditating on the truth of what God's word is actually communicating to you. And by the way, I want to point out really briefly, this is very, very different from other forms of meditation. For instance, Eastern forms of meditation, I'm going to make a pretty broad generalization, but but by and large, this is true. The, The basic goal of Eastern forms of meditation, like Hinduism or Buddhism, the goal of Eastern meditation is to empty your mind and lose yourself. It's to empty your mind and lose yourself. The goal of Christian meditation is to fill your mind with the truth of God and become yourself. Eastern meditation, empty your mind and lose yourself. Christian meditation, fill your mind and become yourself. And one last thing before we move to the final point. Um, This psalm is saying that meditation is something we do day and night. You notice that, right? Now, that may not mean literally day and night or 24 hours a day, but it does mean at the very least regularly, hopefully daily, that this would become a habit, a discipline in your life, something that you just do naturally whenever you sit down to pray. That um, Maybe not every single time, because like I said, some forms of prayer, it's a distress call. It's sending up a flare. You're just calling out your... But you're in conversation with God, And the basis of that conversation is meditation on his word. Because remember, whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the importance of meditation, the promise of meditation. We've seen the practice of meditation. But lastly, the challenge of meditation. Because, you know, like I mentioned just a bit ago, does all of this sound like a lot of work? It is. 
And does it sound like this requires a lot of time and energy and attention and devotion and discipline? It does, and that's a challenge. But, but notice something else about the person that this psalm is talking about. It says, this person meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. But did you notice what it said right before that? It says that the law of the Lord is a delight to that person. It's their delight. You know, if, if doing all of this Bible study and learning to meditate and, and go through all this discipline, if this sounds like a lot of time and work and energy and attention and devotion and discipline, you're right, it is. But I want you to consider something. You are already doing this with something in your life. You're already doing it. You're already investing all kinds of time and energy and attention and devotion and discipline to something. Why? Because something is your delight. You already know how to meditate because something in your life is your delight. Whatever is your delight, it does not feel like a burden. You'll give all kinds of time and attention to it, and it'll never feel like a burden to you because, because it's a delight to you. You've, you're, you're, you've been completely captured and captivated in your imagination, in your heart, in your mind, in your devotions, in your feelings, in your desires. Whatever your delight is, you're already meditating on it. And whatever it is, it's shaping your heart. Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. So for instance, if you're standing in line at a store and, and it's a long line and you realize, okay, I've got at least five minutes of completely unstructured time in front of me. What's going to occupy your attention for the next five minutes? Or if it's not your smartphone, and I'm just talking about myself. I'm not talking about you. I'm confessing my own sins here. If it's not the smartphone, some, what, you're going to daydream about something. You're going to think about something. What is it going to be? What occupies your attention when you have nothing else that you're focusing on? What do you daydream about? What do you fantasize about? What captures your heart and your imagination and your mind? That's your delight. You're already meditating because something is already your delight. Now listen, the only way you will really learn to meditate like this on God's word is if you find a way for it to become a delight to you. And that's a huge challenge because when you really start pondering the law of the Lord, the whole scripture, um, you know, you realize it's basically impossible to live like this. I mean, for instance, take the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount was a very famous sermon that Jesus preached, and it's basically an extended meditation on the law of the Lord. When Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking the law of the Lord, and he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you that anybody who even resents someone in your heart, you've already murdered them in your heart. He takes the standard of the Old Testament law, which is already pretty much impossible, and then he just raises the bar on it. You know, a lot of people think that being a Christian means that we obey Jesus' ethical teachings, that it basically just means being a good person, golden rule Christianity. Just If we all would just live the way the Sermon on the Mount taught us to live, that's what it means to be a Christian. Oh my goodness, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? If you really sit down and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you take it seriously, it's not going to be a delight to you, it's going to crush you. Because you're going to realize that nobody can live like this. And that's the point. We all fail to live like this. And we all deserve justice because of that. Because it's instinctive. You look at other people that are living unjustly and you know instinctively that, well, they deserve justice. What about ourselves? 
We all deserve justice because we all fail to live like this. Here's the question. How is the law going to become not just a duty that crushes you? How is it going to become a delight that transforms you? Here's how. You have to see that there is one who made their delight in the law of the Lord. There is one who did live like this. There is one who did meditate day and night on the law of the Lord. There is one person who was so shaped by Scripture and who lived it so perfectly that every word that came out of his mouth and every action that he performed was the perfect embodiment of the law because he was the living embodiment of the law because Jesus Christ was and is the word made flesh. He was the one whose whole heart and mind and life and being was shaped completely and perfectly by Scripture, so much so that he was the living embodiment of the word. So much so, in fact, that as Tim Keller has famously said many times, that when you cut Jesus open, he bled Scripture. And that's not just, you know, a colloquialism. It's almost literally true. Because when Jesus was on the cross, what happened? He quoted Psalm 22. He quoted Scripture. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, when you're in a crisis moment in your life, you don't have time to think about how you're going to act. Whatever's inside of you, that's just what comes out without you thinking about it. Whatever's in your heart, that's what just comes out of you. You don't have time to think about it. Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. At the moment of Jesus' greatest crisis in his life, what came out of him? The word of God. It just poured out of him. Do you want to know how the law of the Lord can go from being a duty that crushes you to a delight that transforms you? Look at Jesus. The point of the law is to point you to Jesus, the ultimate and perfect fulfillment of the law. The, if you want to learn to meditate, you know, this psalm is saying, hey, look, if you want to learn to meditate, it gives you an image. It says, here's what the person who meditates looks like. Look at a tree. Friends, if you want to know how the law of the Lord can go from being a duty that crushes you to a delight that transforms you, look at a tree. The tree. The cross of Jesus Christ. The point of the law is to point you to Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Not as an example that we're supposed to imitate, because that will just crush you, because none of us can live like that, but as a Savior who already lived like that and fulfilled all of that law for you. And understand, I am not saying that we're not supposed to live like Jesus or be like Jesus. Of course we are. And of course, one of the main goals, one of the main points of all of this is to actually transform us into the image of Jesus so that we actually become like him and live like him. But if we start with the duty, if we start, if all Jesus is to you is an example that we're supposed to imitate and nothing more, then all that will do is crush you or fill you with pride and self-righteousness. The point, the only way that the law will go from being a duty that... Um, that crushes you to a delight that transforms you if, you. if you see that Jesus is not first and foremost an example that we must imitate, but that he is first and foremost a savior who already accomplished all of the law for you. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And when you look at him on the cross, you see him doing all of that for you. He fulfilled the duty that we could never fulfill so that we could make him the delight we've always yearned for. Because on the cross, don't you know what happened to Jesus? He was blown away. 
Jesus became like chaff. He was blown away so that you could be made into a person of stability and substance and integrity and character, a person who would become like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf never withers. So that when you meditate on God's word, it's not just a duty, it's delight because Jesus is your delight. He is your beauty because he has captured and captivated your heart and your mind and your imagination and your attention and all of your devotions and all of your desires and all of your dreams so that every time you look at the law, every time you meditate on God's word, you're learning more and more to see Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the law, the word made flesh. Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. And friends, a word-shaped heart is a Jesus-shaped life. Is Jesus shaping your life and your heart today? Is he your delight today? Meditate on him. And the more you meditate on him, the more you will become a tree planted by streams of water and your leaf will never wither. Let's pray.